Well, friends, we continue today in the third of our sermon series entitled In the Wilderness. And when we designed this series weeks ago, we were in the wilderness of a political upheaval, a time in our country's history that was full of turmoil. We were in that wilderness then, and then throughout the several, last several months, we've been in a wilderness of a pandemic. All of this is swirling about us. And now, since last Sunday, since Eric's resignation, we are in a new wilderness, a wilderness of pastoral transition. And our challenge in all the wildernesses we face is to maintain perspective, to keep a hopeful perspective. And I think that today's text will help us. We're gonna be looking at Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Let me say a few words about Isaiah. As some of you know, Isaiah is the longest book in the Bible. It's certainly the largest book in the Old Testament, 66 chapters. It's been called by many the greatest book of the Old Testament. In fact, it influenced John the Baptist, it influenced Jesus, and it certainly influenced the New Testament writers. There are more allusions to the book of Isaiah in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. 411 quotations of Isaiah are in the New Testament. Isaiah's name is so instructive. His name means Yahweh, the Lord, will save. It's not all that different from Jesus's name. Jesus's name is Yeshua, the Lord saves. And so the book of Isaiah is all about this amazing vision of God's salvation that has all-encompassing uh, considerations. So let me invite you to today's passage. We're going to look at Isaiah 35, beginning at verse one. I'll read it without comment and then we'll return to it in the body of the sermon. The prophet writes, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this ancient vision so hopeful, so much perspective to be gleaned. We pray that now your Holy Spirit would open its riches to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As some of you know, I grew up in Southern California, about an hour east of Los Angeles in a place called Riverside. And growing up in Southern California, you know, we really didn't have seasons. I mean, the weather may have fluctuated slightly, but it was pretty much warm and clear most of the year. And you know something, when you grow up without seasons, you miss a lot of life lessons. You miss the ups and the downs, the fluctuations. You miss a lot of what seasons have to teach you. I learned a lot of this when our family moved to join you here in Colorado in 2002. We got here and all of a sudden we had seasons. We had fall, it was a real fall with colors. And then we had winter and we got to ski with our small boys at the time. And then we came to spring, March, March came and uh, you know, I always looked forward to March. It's a month of my birth and always it's a, surrounded, you know, with good new life of spring. And so we came to spring, March, 2003 and we had one of the biggest snowfalls on record. Do you remember that? Probably a lot like this weekend, but it just slammed us. And all of a sudden I was taught the lessons of springtime in the Rockies. And since then, what I've come to do is I know that snow can still fall in great measure in March, but I start looking for signs of spring. I look up in the trees and I look for the little buds that start to form on the branches. Or I look at our lawn and I look for the little shoots of green grass. Or I look in our front yard and see these daffodils. These grew up in, uh, and grow up every year in our front yard. Everything else is dry and barren. And then just this little springtime of life shoots forward the lovely yellow of the daffodils. And I've come to see the wonders of new life in a desperate time. You know, the Holy Land in Israel is on the same latitude as Southern California. And their seasons or lack thereof are very similar to what I grew up with. Now, granted, if you live in the northern part of Israel, it's, it's lush. Uh, and you can actually ski in Mount Hermon on the northernmost part of Israel. But in the south, in the Judean desert, it's very barren. The wilderness is, is austere. Here's a picture of the Judean desert. It's uh, taken from Bethlehem looking south across the Herodian where King Herod built one of his fortresses. And you're looking out into the Judean desert and it, uh, you can see its barrenness. The wilderness is extreme. And yet in the foreground, just a hint of greenery. You know, they only get about four to five inches of rainfall in this part of Israel each year. And when that rain falls, it often is channeled through wadis. Wadis are like slot canyons. Here's a picture of a wadi. There you can see the, the rain has come through the wadi and it has formed an oasis, a place of greenery, a place of refreshment, a place of life. One of the great images in the Holy Land for new life in the wilderness is that of the crocus, the crocus. The crocus is a symbol of hardiness and hope. I learned that the crocus is actually in the iris family. It's one of the first flowers to bloom in springtime in the Holy Land. 
It's been called the light bulb of the garden. For those of you who are involved in the financial businesses, you've heard the term crocus. The crocus is a symbol of a company that has risen after terrible economic downturns. The crocus is a symbol of new life, of new life after wilderness. I also learned that the crocus produces saffron, one of the most expensive spices there is, and that the crocus has anti-carcinogenic properties. It's used to fight off cancer in some cases. The crocus also has antioxidant properties and it's an immune booster. The point is the crocus is an image of life, of freshness, newness, of health and hardiness in the wilderness. Isaiah's vision uses the crocus to teach us lessons about what it means to be the people of God in the wilderness while God is at work bringing life. Amidst the dryness and the danger of the desert, the crocus is an image for fresh life from God in the wilderness. I'd like to go back to Isaiah 35 for a minute and make a few comments on just the first seven verses of, of that chapter. So let's take a look at Isaiah 35 again. It begins, the desert and the parched land will be glad. That's a promise. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom it will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. In other words, all the lushness, all the verdant uh, greenery of the north will be brought down into the desert. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Do you see what Isaiah's looking toward? In his divinely inspired perspective, Isaiah is looking forward to the restoration of all creation. That God will take all the broken pieces of the created order and restore them. Bring into them new life, richness and fullness. This is the future that Isaiah looks forward to. So it has a, 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 a sort of environmental aspect, but then it has a human aspect. And that's the center of this portion of our text. Verse 3. Isaiah writes, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. God is doing an amazing thing. He's coming back to save his people. And all the, the brokenness of the human order, the human life on earth will be restored by this gracious God. And there'll be signs of that. And we see these signs in verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. In other words, people's brokenness and their disability and their afflictions will be overcome by the goodness and graciousness of God. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And then Isaiah leaves the human element and moves back into the wilderness and into the created order and says this, water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. 
in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, just like that oasis at the bottom of the wadi. The point is, Isaiah is looking forward to the end of all time when all of God's creation, both the environmental aspects and the human aspects, will be restored. This is the glorious future that Isaiah points forward to. Now, as Christians, thousands of years after this prophecy, we read Isaiah's vision through Jesus' glasses. We look back through Jesus and his life and ministry, and we see greater fullness of this vision. Let me tell you what I mean. In fact, to do so, let me talk to you about a text that we have here, Matthew 11, beginning at verse 1. Let's take a look at that. You'll see how Isaiah's vision is lived out in Jesus. Matthew writes, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. When John, John the Baptist, who was in prison, remember he was imprisoned by Herod, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, the Christ, he heard about what Jesus was doing in his ministry, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? In other words, are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? Now, it's interesting to note that John the Baptist expected the Messiah to come with great power and glory and vengeance to destroy evil once and for all, to liberate the people from oppression. That's what John was looking forward to. And instead, he got something else. And here it is in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. Isaiah 35, verse 5. The lame walk. Isaiah 35, verse 6. The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of of me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is pointing to his ministry of healing and deliverance. He's saying that in me and in my ministry, Isaiah's vision is being fulfilled. Jesus is bringing now the restoration of all creation, but only in part. John the Baptist expected the end to come in one climactic occurrence, but what we've come to see is that Jesus is bringing it in two stages. There is a first stage, the first coming of Jesus, and a second stage, the second coming, the return of Jesus, where all things will be restored, where there will be the fullness of Isaiah's vision. We now live in the tension of these first and second comings of Christ, where the kingdom of God is here in part, and there is restoration of creation, and Isaiah's vision is being fulfilled but only in part. The second part is still to come. I like to illustrate this with a Venn diagram. You've seen me do this before. On the left side, you see this world. This is the broken, fallen world that we're so familiar with. And then on the right side, you see the world to come, which is Jesus bringing the, the newness, the vision of Isaiah into this world. And then there's that overlap in the middle, and that's where we live. We live in the overlap of the two comings, the, the beginning of the vision of Isaiah fulfilled and the end still to come. And so, folks, we live as in-between people. We live as both-and people. 
We live there right in the middle, in the tension of those two places. The new life of Jesus, the new life prophesied by Isaiah is here, but only in part. There is still so much yet to come. Hardship, dryness, difficulty, sickness, death, all these are still with us. We're not there yet. And so we live in this tension, the tension of the now and the not yet. And this is the task of discipleship. How do we live in that place? How do we keep that perspective in a way that is hopeful and healthy? How do we do that in our world where our world is filled with examples of pain and discouragement? How do we maintain Isaiah's perspective? How do we do it in ourselves when we wrestle with our own brokenness, our own sinful struggles, our own temptations, our own failures? How do we maintain that perspective of hope? And how do we do it in the church? The church, which is meant to be the glorious bride of Jesus Christ and yet fails so often and struggles so much. How do we live in the tension of these two realities? How do we keep the hopeful perspective? Like the crocus, how do we be hardy amidst the difficulties of the wilderness? Well, I can think of a few possible ways. It starts, I think, by seeing through Jesus' glasses, giving perspective to our lives through the Jesus event. As we look with Jesus' glasses, keeping in mind who Jesus is and what he did, as we keep this perspective that is based on faith and hope and love, as we do this, we begin to see hopeful uh, angles on what we're currently going through. I like to often illustrate this by the uh, front range or mountain range. You can see a picture of that here. You know, in a, in a mountain range as complex as the one we have before us, we have, of course, the flat irons in the very foreground. And then after that, we have the, the foothills right beyond them. And then in the distance, we have the uh, front range itself, excuse me, the uh, continental divide. And it's sometimes easy to have these be blurred. Sometimes with smoke or clouds or fog, we can't see the depth of the ranges. And all we can seem to see is the foreground. But then when the smoke clears or the clouds lift, we can begin to see what lies in the background. And this, I think, is a really helpful way of viewing faith. We don't deny the hardship in the foreground. We don't deny that. There is, in fact, hardship. There is difficulty. But with the eyes of faith, we, we look beyond the foreground. We look beyond the most immediate ranges to the depth of the distant range. And that is our hopeful future. And so we, we attempt to see things in that perspective. And that's how I think that the prophets saw things. You know, when they had their prophecies, when the word of God came to them, I think they saw it all as one main range. But what we've come to see is that there are depth of fulfillment to their prophecy. And uh, now in Jesus, we see a major new aspect of that, uh, perhaps in the foothills. And then through Jesus, we look forward to the end of all time, to the continental divide and the soaring peaks. So keeping this perspective, I think, can help us. And then we need to learn from the daffodil. Remember the daffodil earlier? I don't know how they do it, but for most of the year, I don't even see the daffodil bloom. 
The daffodil bulbs are deep in the soil. They are alive, but they're buried in that nurturing soil. And when the conditions are right, life emerges. We need to be like the daffodil, rooted deeply in Jesus, rooted deeply in the word of God that gives us life. And it's out of that that we maintain stability and hardiness. And it's out of that that new life springs. You know, in Hebrew, the word for hope is the same as the word for wait. Some of you uh, may remember Isaiah 40, such a beautiful chapter, just a few chapters after the one we read today. And there at the end of chapter 40, we read these words. Even though vigorous young men stumble and youths have trouble walking freely, Isaiah says, yet those who wait, those who hope in the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not be weary. They will run and not faint. Those who hope, those who wait, those who have kept Isaiah's vision, those who have maintained this perspective will find new energy, new life, new strength. May that be true of us. Friends, as we acknowledged, we've got a lot of wilderness around us right now. We've had a wilderness of political upheaval. We've had a wilderness of pandemic, and we still do. And we've had a pastoral transition wilderness as well. And so we find ourselves in the wilderness. But the drumbeat of God's word to us has been, God is with us in the wilderness. In the wilderness, we are not alone. We have a faithful God who is working to bring new life who, even though we may not see it, is bringing new life now. This God we can depend on, we can hope in, we can wait for with confidence. Friends, whatever our wilderness, God is with us in Jesus Christ. Like the crocus, like the daffodil, like rainwater gushing down a wadi into an oasis, God is at work bringing life out of the desert, out of the wilderness. Sometimes it's a faint greenery. Sometimes it's a small bit of color poking up out of the barren ground. Sometimes the clouds and the smoke part and we can see the depth of the mountain ranges before us and the snowy peaks beyond. Sometimes it's slow and subtle, but it's here, persistent, present, faithful. Whatever our wilderness, the challenge is to keep the perspective Keep the vision, maintain hope. Remember the lessons of the crocus. View your life, view our lives together through Jesus' glasses. Jesus walks with us and he is at work bringing new life in the wilderness. Friends, believe the good news. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray for everyone tuned in at this very moment. You know the wilderness that each one of them is in. Some we've named and others we've not. These could be wildernesses of all different sorts. But Lord, we pray that you would now remind them that they're not alone. Remind them that you specialize in bringing life into the wilderness. Bring them refreshment, we pray right now. In Jesus' name, amen.